When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So today I have in the studio a, a Rolling Stone legend, Anthony DeCurtis, who's been writing for the magazine for 35 years, and he has a new book out called Lou Reed, A Life. Well, it's going to be out. It's going to be out October 10th. October 10th, and it's a pretty definitive, exquisitely researched biography of Lou Reed, and it obviously represents a very intense amount of work, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk about the life and music of Lou Reed with uh, Mr. Anthony DeCurtis. I th- thought we might start with a clip of you talking to Lou himself, someone in uh, an occasion that happened fairly often. You guys knew each other. Yeah. He was comfortable with you. And the clip I'm going to play is from a very different kind of interview you did with him uh, at the University of Pennsylvania where you teach. Exactly. And uh, you got <laughs> Lou Reed to come up to uh, the University of Pennsylvania and sit with a class and uh, allow you to interview him in front of them. And you actually talk about this in the uh, the preface of your book. Explain a little bit about how that happened. And well, it was a um, you know every year uh, we have a a kind donor who has uh, underwritten uh, you know the ability to bring down a singer-songwriter once a year. But getting Lou down was really a trick. And uh, it was kind of like the one time Lou Reed played Lou Reed with me, you know, and um, because this thing was like a year in the in the planning. And, um, you know, in a way that I, I'm sure you'll recognize is never a good sign, his manager called me about two days before it was supposed to happen and said, um, yeah, maybe you should talk to Lou. And I just thought, I thought that was your job, you know, but... Um, mm. Uh, as it turns out, you know, Lou was you know, beginning to have second thoughts, and I'll come down and do the interview, but I don't want to do the other stuff. But all of the stuff, it was, you know, the whole event, they all went together. And, uh, yeah, we had a pretty tense exchange uh, about it. But, in fact, you know, he showed up and uh, had a good time. But it was, you know, like so many things with Lou, like every strategy worked. You know, if he goes out and is a nice guy, that works. But if he doesn't come and it's, well, it's like, Lou, is he going to come out? He's here. They said he's here, but he's not. And then finally, when we walked out, I could feel, like, even though it was a small room, it's like, you know, 50 or 60 people, uh, you know, it was, um, you could feel the energy in the room. It was like, oh, wow, like, that's Lou Reed. Like, he finally came out. He's doing it. And before we play this clip of you talking with uh, Lou Reed, I want to talk about your relationship with him on a broader sense because you experienced good Lou, but you quickly in your research uh, talked to a lot of people who experienced a lot of other sides of Lou. Well, look, you know, we've all heard the stories. You know, there was no mystery there. Uh, There was, uh, and, you know, I never really bought the thing. You know, there were people who would say, you know, because Lou was mean to journalists, I mean, all the time. And, uh, you know, look, some of those people were jerks and some of them were like really nice, smart people who uh, very much enjoyed Lou Reed and, and, you know, believed deeply in his importance. One of the things, uh, you know, in a, in a funny way, that was one of the issues that I wanted to kind of get after, not 
his attitude towards journalists, but his attitude towards journalists as a symptom of something else. Because, you know, it's one thing if, you know, some pop star doesn't like journalists. That's great. Like, I've got 50 million fans. They love me. You know, some dweeb writing in some magazine doesn't. Who cares? But Lou Reed owed his career to journalists. It was journalists you know, and musicians, but primarily journalists who kept the Velvet Underground in people's minds. Uh, they, um, you know, there was an element of, uh, you know, it wasn't the, the, the general population. And so what was it that um, made, accounted for this difficulty that he had with journalists? And I, I really feel it was like, um, oh, you know, I felt like with him, there was always a doubleness. And I think the fact that I think he was aware that he did owe journalists something. And he, and I think that played out, you know, with various musicians that he worked with who would make contributions, producers mm. he worked with who would make contributions. Uh, you know, someone like Andy Warhol, for example. I think Lou got what he needed from Warhol and then I think began to resent Warhol. You know, that story all got um, smoothed over, I think, after Andy died. But, you know, that that doubleness where um you know you start out uh kind of collaborating and appreciating with some uh <laughs> appreciating someone and then it somehow turns i think that was a really uh kind of key aspect of his personality so let's hear anthony de curtis and lou reed talking how long ago was this 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 would have been i think it might have been 2012 you know, the year before he died. Mm. It might have been 2011-2012. So let's hear a, a very reflective and friendly Lou Reed talking with Anthony De Curtis. Talk about, you know, the first time you heard rock and roll. You know, what it meant to you and, and how it gripped you. I mean, this is a part of you that... Uh, you know, has stayed so true through all of the transformations, even as you've done other things than rock and roll. Um, the kind of the sound of it and the chords and your guitar playing is so so much a part of what that is. And what Bar bands since age fourteen, <laughs> right so, across the street from the high school. You know, I was in these bands, and we would play. Uh, seriously bad places <laughs> it's like you know after hours kind of things and um, I was I, I had this amazing luck because there, things would happen and just as it was coming at me something would stop it somebody would grab somebody or somebody whatever and it would just stop right here and if it hadn't, I wouldn't even be here, you know, but it would just stop, whatever was the problem. Like guys, you know, you're fucking playing, and I got money in the jukebox, you cocksucker. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> you know, it's, okay. well, yeah, okay. You know, and they're getting ready to beat you to death over that. And something would stop that from happening. You know, so I was listening to it from the radio. That's when the radio meant something. So with the first things, like kind of doo-wop, was it, and, you know, this kind doo -wop. of very beautiful and doo-wop soul. The sound of the hound <laughs> out of Buffalo. Did you ever hear him? I never heard him, but I, I know what that he, is. He was wonderful. Jocko, up, 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 big bed, rocket, higher, higher, higher. 
Yes, I love this shit. Serious. You know, Alan Freed, when he hit New York on the uh, Winds Radio. Later on, we had a record out while I was in high school. And Alan Freed was supposed to play it, and he was sick that day, and they had Paul Sherman sitting in it for Alan Freed, and they played it once. And that was it. Was it exciting to hear it on the radio? Wow. <laughs> Are you kidding? On Alan Freed? Even if it was the sub? <laughs> I was 14. I was 14. We had a record out. I mean, I didn't sing it. I wrote it, but I hadn't moved up front yet. I was way in the back. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you. You know, one of the it's, I think it's easy to understand the kind of aspirations of somebody to become a musician or become a, in a band. And, you know, you could, kids can look at that and see it and be excited by it. What about the songwriting? Where did that come from? The, the idea of writing songs? Like, you know, I mean, it takes a while for people even to know that, you know, songs just don't happen. You know, somebody sits there and does it. You know, when did that idea, you know, From present? playing songs wrong? <laughs> Or forgetting the lyric. So you'd make up your own. You say, oh, hmm, I see how this works. It just is. You know what I'm saying? Yes. So, and, you know, uh, when, I, when I was in school getting the degree in English, I was, you know, like that was okay, but I was very aware of that other side over there. That I was way more interested in that than that, to say the least, because I liked rock. And I've never not liked rock. It's like something hit me and never let me go. And uh, I wrote songs about it. A Sweet Jane, for one. Well, rock and roll. Yeah. You know, I wasn't kidding. It's like, can you, you know, can you imagine if we didn't have black people? No soul music. No rock. It's unthinkable. You know, it's such a horrifying thought. And there's no black people here. You know, it's like, wow. Just think about it. We'd still be doing madrigals. <laughs> so that was Lou Reed talking to Anthony DeCurtis and Anthony has a, a book coming out uh, Lou Reed A Life on October 10th Anthony tell me about Lou's childhood and, and especially what you sort of learned about it in the process of your reporting and research that you didn't know and the world might not have known until you were uh, got in there well one of the things um you know, almost, almost like, uh, you know, Franz Kafka wrote this book called Letter to His Father, in which he describes his father as this kind of monstrous figure. And Lou always kind of described his own father as this monstrous figure. I mean, he was an accountant, had his own firm, uh, lived out in um, on Long Island, uh, in Freeport, Long Island, uh, although Lou was born in Brooklyn. And um, he would describe his father in these... Uh, you know, really grim terms as this kind of, you know, very dominant figure. And uh, it was, and wrote a song called Kill Your Sons, uh, 
where uh, you know, well, the title kind of speaks for itself. <laughs> and um, I remember when I was interviewing his first wife, uh, whose name is Betty Kronstadt, and it was one of the early interviews I did. I mean. Uh, I was happy to find her. She hadn't really done much stuff. And um, uh, I went to Chicago to interview her. And we, you know, talked for, uh, you know, a couple of days. And one of the things, you know, she was saying, she was talking about Lou being cheap, which was which was a little <laughs> leitmotif of, of many interviews, actually. And she was saying, you know, we lived in small apartments and, uh, you know, you know, no matter how much money Lou was making, and you know, he never wanted to ask his parents for money. And I just immediately said, "Well, I mean, would his father have given him money?" And she said, "Of course, his father would have given him money, <laughs> like anything for Lou." And this sense of who this guy was, um, you know, it's almost like Lou invented him in order to be able to rebel against that figure. Now there were there were issues there. I mean. As a as a kid, as a very young kid, certainly as a teenager, you know, Lou was using drugs. Uh, you know, back in the early '60s, he was you know kind of uh, you know going to gay bars and things like this, uh, which you know w w was well before the days of gay liberation and you know his extremely middle class uh, Jewish suburban parents, uh, and particularly his father. You know, that was it was unsettling for them. I mean, they weren't brutal, uh, you know, homophobes, uh, yeah. yeah, homophobes. It just was, you know, it was, it was like your kid wanted to be a Martian or something. It just made no sense to them. And um, uh, the treatment that was recommended for this was shock treatment. Now, um, that at the time was not uncharacteristic. Uh, was was pretty typical, but it made a big impression on Lou. It was very traumatic. And uh, he wrote about it, he spoke about it, and he never forgave his parents for it. Um, his mother felt very guilty about it. I don't think his father particularly did. I mean, I think his father felt, you know, I, I did what I felt that I could do, you know? I, and I think tried to make it up with him in, in many ways, but in, in a lot of ways his father, his name was Sid, um, was as... Uh, well, you know, his son got all of his strong will and his stubbornness from somewhere. And the two of them, um, I think, clashed in that regard. There was an element, I think, you know, Sid wanted a kid who would take over the accounting business. I think that would have been his yeah, dream. He, he got the wrong kid. Yeah, and the wrong, you know, Lou just uh, <laughs> Lou just showed up. But I mean, it was really interesting. I talked to this friend of his one time who just said, you know, I mean, it was a very interesting turn of phrase he used. He goes, you know, with Lou, he goes, you know, with Lou, his parents didn't turn out the way he wanted them to be. Mm. You know, and I think that was, you know, it was just uh, so he invented sort of the parents that he needed in order for him to become Lou Reed. One of your sources said that he felt like Lou, even deep into his life, was so preoccupied with just shocking his parents. Absolutely. That it, that, which is... I mean, it's incredibly juvenile, and I mean, obviously, it, it produced amazing some some of the most amazing rock and roll ever, and some great art. But it, it's incredible that he was still driven by that. It, oh. It's 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 insane. Brian, yeah. the last interview he ever did, which yeah. was um, a, a, prior, a kind of promotional interview, as it happens, for some headphones. He was a real gearhead and yeah. loved any kind of uh, you know new equipment. And um, you know, after he'd had his uh, you know liver transplant, he did an interview and this very polite and sweet young French woman was interviewing him. This is the kind of person Lou would typically have no use for, but I think at that point in his life, he was willing 
you know, to, uh, you know, to deal with her. And she was just, you know, she knew that Lou Reed was an important rock star. She was mostly asking him about the headphones. But, <laughs> um, you know, she wanted to ask some questions about how he got interested in music. And um, she said, you know, well, Lou, you know, uh, did your, you know, did you get interested in rock and roll? You know, did your father give you a guitar? And Lou Reed just said, my father didn't give me shit. Mm. Just like that. And I just felt like, yeah, man, this is like at the very end. And, and at, at Lou's memorial service at the Apollo, uh, the painter Julian Schnabel told a story about that Lou told him. They were, you know, he was holding Lou uh, at, at the swimming pool at Lou and Laurie's house out uh, in the Hamptons. And uh, Lou told him a story about going to the beach with his father and his father slapping him. Now, I ran that story by a bunch of people who said to me, like, look, you know, I wasn't there, but the idea of Sid slapping Lou is inconceivable. Mm. But Lou held on to that idea and really, and sort of went to the grave with it. So Lou started really becoming Lou Reed as early as high school. Um, He was somehow obtaining weed in a a time when that was not very easy for a Long Island uh, teenager to do. Certainly not. Um, In fact, his his friends still don't know where he was getting it. Um, And he he was also, you know, slipping out to to gay bars and and writing stories that kind of drew on on sort of like gay fantasies, while at the same time, many of his friends felt that he was completely heterosexual. So even that dichotomy was, was, was there from the beginning. I think, you know, some version of that ran through his whole life. You know, I think that... Um yeah, I mean, un- unpacking Lou's sexual life, you know, on one level, who cares? On the other level, he wrote about it, you know, and, and that whole world, you know, a kind of, um, you know, world of, you know, S&M sex and, and gay sex and all of that is part of his work. So I felt like it was, you know, fair game. But it was uh, it was difficult to untangle, you know, the where exactly he was because you know you talked to some of his high school friends and they were like, you know, Lou was playing tennis and uh, you know riding like where riding horses, you said. Yeah, yeah, completely, yeah. you know, and uh, you know, uh, you know, having part time jobs and all this other stuff that kids in high school do. But you know, he had this other life where you know at night he was going out to, you know, pretty well known uh, you know gay bar out on the island and. Uh, you know, and and getting weed, and you know, uh, kind of exploring, also like literature. I mean, at that time, I mean, I was alive back then. I was, you know, a little bit younger than Lou, um, but you know, I sort of remember all of this. Uh, you know, these magazines uh, that would come out, like Evergreen, that were sort of avant-garde, and you know, um, you know, in a certain way, you know, Hugh Hefner just recently died, and he obviously broke certain you know, sexual codes. But, you know, the avant-garde did that too, you know, exploring all of this kind of underworld sex. And, you know, um, and Lou read all that stuff. You know, he was reading books like City of Night and things like that when he was really young. And, you know, that became part of his world. I think it was his, you know, his journey out of suburbia. But, you know, it was sort of contained within suburbia and also coexisted with suburbia. There was a lot about suburbia, that Lou liked. I mean, Lou trashed Long Island all the time. Where did he die? Long Island, you know? I mean, the Hamptons are still part of that, and being by the water is still part of that. All the stuff that he grew up with, 
you know, was part of the world that, you know, he also reconstructed for himself. So there was always, again, I, re I return to this idea of this kind of doubleness about him, you know, the bisexuality, um, you know, these kind of emotions that would shift. It was, uh, it was complicated to find through lines through all that. So Lou went off to Syracuse University. Right. And he was already a musician. He was ha he had some success in high school as a musician. Right. And uh, But he also wanted to be a writer. And he also wanted to take a lot of drugs and sleep with a number of women. So this all kind of came together for him in his college years. Uh, that's true. <laughs> all of that is correct. Um, yeah, there was a sense in which, um, you know, Lou's aspirations, I mean, some of which overlapped. I mean, I think, you know, as he would repeatedly say later you know at Syracuse one of the people he studied with was the the poet Delmore Schwartz and um, that made a huge impression on him it, and I think partly because Delmore Schwartz was a great writer but also because I think it gave him a sense of what can happen in a larger world like suddenly mm. I'm talking to someone that T.S. Eliot said was one of the best writers he had ever read and I think that was a glimpse of what was possible and uh, you know, so all of the bands that he was in, and you know, like a lot of musicians starting out, you know, there was this band and a version of that band. And he played, you know, by himself sometimes, and uh, he was kind of a folky starting out. I mean, like some of his girlfriends from back then would tell me, like, you know, Lou would sit there and strum songs to them, and, uh, an unlikely picture, but nonetheless, um, you know. And but I think that you know he wanted finally to fuse those things, to fuse the kind of like you know high literary. Uh, world that he encountered with Delmore Schwartz with this kind of, you know, this this great gritty rock and roll that he loved, you know, um, you know, which is finally I think you know what he what he managed to do, and so um, but yeah, like he was in bar bands essentially. I mean, and and you know, he was trying to write his own songs and doing it now and then, but you know they would do a bunch of covers and and they and played they played it fraternities exactly, yeah, you know, some gigs. You know, they'd get paid a lot of money, some gigs not so much. And, uh, yeah, you know, he was running around and also dealing drugs. I mean, he nearly got thrown out of Syracuse for that. Uh, you know, managed to stay, graduated with honors in English, and, uh, you know, and then came back to New York. And he, he comes back to New York, and he gets sort of the uh, the low-rent equivalent of a Brill Building gig, I exactly. guess is how I'd describe That's it. That's exactly right. Yeah, um, yeah he, got, he got a job at a place called Pickwick Records, which is in Long Island City, just you know across the East River uh, in Queens. And he, um, they were, they would do these knockoffs. I don't even think anything remotely like this exists anymore. But like back when I was a kid, um, you know, you, you would go to a store, you'd go to the Five and Ten, which is where you would go mostly to buy records. Uh, and there would be like, oh wow, like that group kind of looks like the Beatles, but it's not the Beatles. It, you know, it's the Beatles with their name, you know, maybe with two E's rather than B E A T. And um, you know, whatever was happening, if it was you know surf music, they would go to like someone like Lou Reed and say like, write a bunch of surf songs, and he would do it. <laughs> They'd put a band together like in the studio. They'd release it as the Beach Nuts. And it would be in a store, and like people would think the beach nuts were real. And so finally, though, there was this one great moment where, based on something he'd read in the newspapers, that uh, ostrich feathers were going to be a fashion trend. Lou wrote a song called "Do the Ostrich," which, by the way, if anybody can, you know, I mean, online you can hear it has a monstrous riff, 
and um, but it's you know like a stupid dance song. It's like do the ostrich, but it, it kind of got a thing. You know, people invited them to play these teen TV shows, and well, then they put a band together. We I think we can actually hear Lou Reed's bizarre '60s song, uh, "The Ostrich," right now. God, they they about, yeah. stole that baseline so straight out of him that he kissed me. Incredible. <laughs> it's hilarious. But it, it's actually really cool, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's great. So, but this actually led to the formation of the Velvet Underground. Well, exactly. Yeah. You know, because strangely, you know, people were picking up on that song. And, you know, there used to be like all these little teen shows that were on TV. And, uh, you know, TV was you know, sort of, a, you know, just starting around then. You know, this is like sort of early 60s. And um, so they went, they needed a band to go play the song because they, you know they, there was no real band, and so they went around and you know somebody ran into John Cale, who um, you know was an avant-garde musician, and um, uh, you know but he had long hair, you know which back then <laughs> would have meant you know he might be a musician, you know, and he also you know he had a Welsh accent, which you know in those days you could mistake for an English accent. Close so they just enough, walked yeah. up to him and said. Yeah, you know, we're doing this thing. The guy met him at a party and said, so suddenly John Cale's in the band. They picked up these two other musicians, essentially, that Cale knew who were also like sculptors and things like that. And they became the primitives. And they went out and did some shows. But, I mean, the the interesting thing about that was Reed and Cale getting together. You know, and there you have like one of the great matchups uh, of rock history really you know this guy who loved rock and roll and had these high literary aspirations and this other guy who also liked rock and roll but also you know had this avant-garde music kind of uh, idea and they got together and they just kind of like got the best out of all of that you know later obviously sterling morrison and maureen tucker came into the picture but you know that was it the primitives were kind of the germ of what became the velvet underground and, you know, the story of the Velvet Underground has been fairly well gone over, but you have some new bits in your book, to be sure. What what surprised you most that you didn't know about Lou's part in the, in the Velvet Underground as you did your reporting? Well, you know, there's a, you know, a number of interesting aspects to it. Um, the thing that struck me most about it, and uh, maybe it was all only my own naivete that didn't make me recognize this earlier, was just how savvy... Lou was being the whole time, mm. you know, because when uh, you know Andy Warhol came along uh, and you know wanted to sort of manage quote unquote the band, and uh, you know essentially that put them on a media platform. I mean, Andy Warhol, even when I was a kid here in New York City, was in the newspapers every day. You know, for you know, people got a kick out of that. This is the guy with the Campbell soup cans right. and the Coca Cola bottles and all this, um, but he still was a name. And, you know, just your association with him, you know, elevated you out of, you know, the other 50 million bands playing around New York City. But Lou, I think, was, you know, as much as he valued Andy and I think he understood what Andy was doing and learned a tremendous amount from him, was always looking beyond him. I think that there was a sense in which the Velvet Underground always, in Lou's mind, was going to be Lou's band. And... um you know, so his collaboration with John Cale, you know, eventually gets sacrificed. Uh, Andy Warhol eventually gets sacrificed. You know, there was a kind of um, 
singularity of will uh, on the part of him, even as uh, as a young guy, that um, really made an impression on me as I did all this research and you know talked to the, you know various people who were around. It um, it became clear like that kind of vision that it takes to become you know Lou Reed. You know, and there is you know they're always. I mean, there, there's some fallout from that. You know, I mean, uh, in a lot of ways, you know, Kale leaving the Velvet Underground was a, was a great loss. Mm. But could they have made that more accessible music without him? No. Yeah, so it's a it's a loss and possibly a gain. You right, know, it's exactly. A fascinating right. thing. And, and, it, and they that, essentially that became the a different band it. at that yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this has always been a famous story and one that always boggled my mind. But the fact that when uh, Lou left the Velvet Underground, he went back to live with his parents exactly. on Long Island and worked as a typist. One story that I heard that I was not able to confirm was that the night he quit the Velvet Underground, they were doing, um, they had a standing gig like all summer. Nobody really even knew why. They didn't have a, a new record out at the time or anything. But at, at, uh, at Max's, Kansas City, and they were playing there, you know, three or four or five nights a week. And one night, Lou just kind of told them, uh, you know, by the way, I'm quitting the band. Somebody told me that his parents were waiting outside the club when after the gig and to drive him back to Long Island. <laughs> I was not able to confirm that, but that is perfectly possible. You know, that, that Sid Reed, you know, the great villain of, of Lou's life, would have like sat in a car outside this club waiting for his son to finish his show in order to drive him home. I, I, I've, you know, I don't know absolutely that's true. It could very well have happened. You know, I, I talked with uh, Lizzie Goodman, who wrote a book about 2000s rock in New York, and one of the things we talked about was, you know, that the Strokes were playing rock star and emulating um, the ones who got heavy into drugs, um, were, were in some sense, em, you know, emulating some idea of like Lou Reed or Absolutely. But the, here's the crazy thing, as your book makes clear, in some ways Lou Reed was emulating some abstract idea of Lou Reed or some idea of... And at points it feels like, and I'd love you to address this, he wasn't sure whether he was playing a role of being someone who was fascinated with decadence and diving into the underworld and nearly dying. And what was going on there between the, the role and the real guy? And, and did he have any grasp or understanding, especially in, in, in his you know pre-sober days? I think that that grasp came and went. That understanding came and went. Uh, and that is to say, I don't mean like at a... I mean, I think he moved in and out of it. And I think like, you know, look, the mask, the mask that sticks to you is like one of the oldest tropes of, you know, literature. Sure. And, and, uh, and I think, you know, part of that, you know, Lou would talk about, you know, the Lou Reed persona as if he were talking about somebody else. And all of those things, you know, the degree to which, um, yeah, there are people would say, you know, like, oh, you know, I mean, all this gay stuff that he did, was that was just to shock people. That was just to piss people off, you know? And upset. certainly his father, like Lou would swish around the house, you know? And he knew that that would drive his father crazy. Now, he also had sex with guys, you know? I mean, how far do you go, you know, in order to do this? And that, that element of, you know, where that line is, you know, because there was a deeply conventional aspect to him. There was a part of him that was um, uh, very much a product of his environment, you know? And, you know, I remember one time interviewing him and he said, uh, somebody, we were, it was at the 92nd Street Y here in New York, as a matter of fact, somebody asked him a question about, you know, like sexual confusion and the blurring of these lines. And he just said, when you're straight and sober, there's no confusion. 
Mm. And another line. But that's not true for, for well, most people. It's not <laughs> true. But I mean, I think <laughs> yeah. in his mind, well, look, I mean, here's yeah. something else he said. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, somebody told me this, you know, kind of did not want it attributed to him, but it was a friend of his, you know, early on when he was writing those stories that you were talking about. Uh, and the guy said, you know, this is much later. He was married uh, to Sylvia, you know, his, his second wife. And, uh, you know, this guy said, oh, you know, I have all these manuscripts, you know, that you had given me, you know, very early on. And, you know, I'd be happy to give them back to you. And Lou just said, I don't want anything to do with that. F and I think that like that, that was part of who he was. Yeah, I found that disturbing, honestly. I, you know, it's because he was talking about him. You know, he he was he he was reacting to some aspect of himself. Absolutely. And it, it's it, you know, I mean, listen, he was Jewish, and he also used uh, slurs against Jews. Absolutely. He, he was a confused guy in some ways. Uh, you know, yeah, look, I mean, that was the way it played out. I mean, I think that there was, you know, on the other hand, by the end of his life, he was, you know, I mean. You know, going to Israel with Laurie Anderson and all this other stuff. And, and, and as far as far as the the you know the use of anti-gay slur, at the same time, just a few you know just a little bit later in your book, um, he got mad at John Mellencamp for having um, Guns, Guns and, and Roses, Roses play Farm Aid after the song One in a Million, which had well actually there's so many groups slurred in that song, but among them, I, I think the reference to AIDS was really what what got under his skin. So he. There was a lot of there was a lot of self loathing that that was expressed as outward loathing. It was, it, it, he was, he was <laughs> well, and it yeah. was self loathing, and as long as it came from him loathing himself, he was okay with it. If it came from you loathing him, that was a problem. I think you know. I mean, he would say that all the time about like uh, John Kell and Nico. He goes, you know, look, it's fine for me. I fought with those people all the time, but like if you criticize them to me, that's a problem. And I think, you know. A lot of this was driven internally. And by the way, you know, we started out talking about his hostility towards journalists. I think Lou was embarrassed by a lot of interviews that he gave where he said the early ones, yeah. Crazy stuff about, you know, what his sex life was like and all of these things, you know, and the and the and the and the anti Semitic slurs and all of that stuff that was in there. And I think he was really embarrassed. And whenever like a journalist as much as said, Oh, you know, you once said he would snap. Yeah. And I think that that's about that. And that's about hating something that he himself did that to embarrass himself. So he had a relationship um, with a, I, I guess, you know, the, the lines were a little blurrier then, but I, I think it was, I think it would be accurate to say a, a trans woman named Rachel. Yes. Um, and, you know, w one of the things your book made me realize is um Lester Bang's infamous, you know, he had a bunch of infamous interviews with Lou, and I know yes. you're not a big fan of Lester, which is, I think, That's an true. undercurrent of this book. Slightly. But, but, yeah, it's um, there. Yeah. But, you know, Lester made some comments that about Rachel that with, you know, full perspective now were understandably unforgivable to Lou. Um, he he was, for, for all Lester himself, prided himself on transgression, and I'm a bigger fan of his writing than, than you are, but I understand your objections to him. He couldn't even understand a trans person. He, yep. he was, you know, and he, he, I won't even repeat how he, you know, how he described her, but, but, yep. but, um, Meanwhile, by the way, Lou himself would what we now call misgender her. He, he, he you know, so so he, you know, people were were, were still grappling with this, but, but completely. So, but one of the one of the things you know, one of the things you you did was really humanize and explain this relationship, which was a very real relationship. He he uh, he lived with Rachel. Yep. Um, they they appeared to have been lovers. She was also though his assistant. Yep. Um, and she kept him kind of safe, and he he kept her safe. Um, but then like with a lot of things 
their relationship completely disappeared and he basically never spoke of her again. Yeah, I mean, what exactly happened with him and Rachel is really unclear. You know, Rachel led, um, uh, I mean, her birth name was Richard Humphreys. Um, you know, son of a double life. I mean, which is something Lou certainly recognized. Uh, you know, of a kind of, you know, uh, kind of transgender person, you know, on the street scene, you know, yeah. and knew how to use a knife, uh, you know, was rumored to have killed somebody in prison. Um, and there was a kind of incredible sweetness. And it, it was amazing. There was an amazing Rorschach quality about talking to all of the people who knew Rachel. Some of them would describe her as, you know, like the most, she would look like the most beautiful woman uh, I ever saw. I mean, Lou talked to this one girlfriend of his, you know, who was asking about Rachel, and he just said, look, she's more beautiful than any fucking woman. You know? <laughs> um, one of the things that's very clear reading your book is, you know, <laughs> how much music Lou produced. Yeah, very we true. Were saying that, I was saying in the break that he probably made a few more albums than he should have. Yeah, than uh, he needed to, certainly. Yeah. This, yeah. I mean, actually, should have is probably silly because I'm, we're grateful to have all of it, especially now that he's gone. But which corners of his catalog, maybe especially in the later era, jumped out as you as, as things that are little, neglected, underrated... Etc. Well, it's interesting. I mean, there were a bunch of songs, certainly, uh, like a song like Mistrial, mm. you know, which I, you know, noted when it came out, didn't mean a lot to me, you know, sounds a lot better now. And the sort of later Lou Reed, uh, you know, the album Ecstasy, of course, you know, yeah. had a tremendous power. And, you know, when I first heard his collaboration with Metallica on Lulu, <laughs> I just kind of rolled my eyes and thought, whatever. But there are some incredibly beautiful and powerful and affecting things on that record as well. David Bowie told uh, Laurie Anderson that he thought that record would be recognized, you know, eventually. Now, that's something David Bowie would say and mm -hmm. say to Laurie Anderson and she would believe it. Uh, but I do actually think it's true. There are a couple moments where Lou seemed to get a sense of his influence and be able to appreciate it. Uh, one was um, in, in Czechoslovakia with Václav Havel. And uh, Havel just implored him to please play at this club. And Lou exactly. was being very difficult. Extremely. Uh, and then he agrees to do it. And as it happens, there's basically like a brilliant Velvet Underground cover band there. And after he plays his own set, he gets on stage with them and plays Velvet Underground songs for this audience of, I mean, explain who was in the audience and what this meant. Well, it was incredible. You know, um, you know, obviously Havel was, um, you know, first of all, a writer of world renown and, and also an activist in uh, Czechoslovakia. Uh, you know, when it was really under the boot of Russia, you know, the, the, I mean, behind the Iron Curtain doesn't begin to describe it. You know, and though, you know, he went to jail, all of his, you know, sort of friends went to jail. And, um, but the Velvet Underground were like big inspirations for them. And, you know, this was really, I mean, people throw around all the time, you know, the subversive power of music, you know, blah, blah, blah. This really was it. You know, these guys, you know, found in, Lou and the Velvets, a kind of vision of freedom. And, you know, for Lou to go there and play these songs to these people who finally had overthrown, uh, you know, the Soviet uh, regime that, that had ruled their country for so long was an incredible moment. I mean, Lou had to be dragged kicking and screaming <laughs> there. But in fact, you know, it was, 
perhaps really the greatest honor of his career. Yeah, and it was so touching when he realized that this band had perfected the Velvet Underground's arrangements, that he could just step in and sing with them. That's that's a beautiful thing. And, and uh, Václav Havel gave him you know, a, a, a collection of his lyrics that was bound, that people would pass around to like a kind of zamestad, you know, a kind of as an underground text that, that they would share. And, you know, they they gave it to Lou and like, you know, man, I mean, there's just nothing, I think, uh, you know, better than that. The other moment was that uh, Lou did a signing for his book and a bunch of people got to speak to him and tell him how much uh, his lyrics had meant. And then, you know, he went backstage and he, he just began sobbing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, Bill Bentley, who was his publicist and worked with him for many years, told me that story and he said it was just incredible. You know, there was such a hard... Um, exterior, a hard shell that Lou had that he cultivated, you know. But in fact, you know, there was a tremendous insecurity, a tremendous sensitivity within him uh, that would come through. Because I think ultimately Lou believed he was a writer. I think that was his main identity. And the fact that these people were coming to a bookstore for his words and telling them what those words meant, I don't think, the, you know, that was, that was, uh, I think something that answered all of his ambitions. And in the couple minutes we have left, I would say that, you know, in in the final years of his life, the thing that allowed him to sort of have a final act and find some peace was um, was Laurie Anderson. Yeah. And he, he everything was different with her, right? Well, you know, it's really kind of a, a thing where, you know, he found, I think, someone who was able to get, you know, all of what Lou Reed was about but yet had an independent life from him. And I think that was very important. Um, You know, I think Lou tended to kind of, um, I think a lot of guys do this with women, you know, like where they, you know, they take the person in, they remold them, and then they get tired of them. Whereas that was not really possible with Laurie Anderson. And Lou, you know, people would ask me, what is it like being around Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson? I said, you know, and expecting like, is you know, going to be some wild, crazy thing. I said, it's like being around you know, like the high school quarterback and his cheerleader girlfriend. Like, like Lou was so deferential to her. Like, I mean, pulling out her chair and, you know, this kind of thing. It was, it was quite extraordinary. So we've been talking to Anthony DeCurtis about his upcoming book, Lou Reed A Life. It's out October 10th. Um, it's a, a definitive and really deeply reported and I would say revelatory book about Lou Reed. And you come away knowing Lou, I think, better than ever. And, and I, I personally mourning Lou is, is something I felt. And I'm sure you felt that a little bit so writing it. Deeply, yeah. Um, and... Uh, Anthony, I hope you, you'll come back sometime soon. Brian, you know, just talking with yeah. you about music is uh, is always such a pleasure. Of so, course, anytime. And so this has been Rolling Stone Music Now. Uh, we're going to be back next week at 1 p.m. here on Volume, Sirius XM, Channel 106. And in the meantime, you can download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And you should definitely subscribe to us as a podcast as well. And maybe do us a favor and leave us a really nice review on iTunes. We'd appreciate it. But in the meantime, we will see you next week and have a great weekend. Welcome. 
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.